You may not have visited California's Central Coast in person, but you have almost definitely seen it in car commercials. You've been invited to imagine yourself there. That winding highway with the ocean on one side and the mountains on the other all lit with that perfect golden sunlight. In advertisements, the landscape signifies freedom and happiness, but it's also a real place. In California's fourth state climate change assessment, the Central Coast region is a long strip of land that runs from Santa Barbara in the south to Santa Cruz in the north. About 1.5 million people live here, spread across five counties. Most of the land is undeveloped natural areas, redwood forests and mountains. There are a handful of medium-sized cities, plus agricultural areas like the Salinas Valley, made famous in the 1930s by author John Steinbeck. This episode explores how climate change will affect life in California's central coast region. You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm Shane Carter. Because of Steinbeck's books and dozens of films and car commercials, the Central Coast is really two places at once. There's the imaginary version with its timeless landscape, and then there's the actual place. It is even more beautiful than the film version, but also more fragile. I spoke with four young people who live along the Central Coast to learn about this region. We'll start with my youngest interviewee, out of all of them, and his prediction for the future. What climate change could mean for this town? Well, and its disastrous effects, our town might be even more proud of its days when, before, all this bad stuff is happening. This is Zeke. I am nine years old, and I, I really love reading. That's the unusual thing. I really love reading, and I really don't like video games. Honestly, when I asked Zeke how he thought climate change would alter his town, I was expecting him to talk about physical changes. But no, this nine-year-old was thinking about the psychology of climate change, how future crisis might change the way we view our past. Zeke lives in a small town just south of San Luis Obispo. Today, San Luis Obispo is a college town, but it grew up around a Catholic mission established as part of the Spanish Empire in 1772. My town is very historical. My town is very proud of its heritage. It's got a park around an old one-room jail. Uh, It's got an old one-room schoolhouse that's been converted into a museum, an old-fashioned barn converted into a museum, an old house converted into a museum, and even a meat shop that dates back to the 1800s. The thing about climate change is not just the extent of the change. It's the speed with which our environment is being remade. That one-room schoolhouse in Zeke's town was built about 120 years ago, in 1901. From one perspective, it's a long time ago. I mean, in 1901, almost no one in the U.S. had ever seen a car, let alone driven one. Almost all the CO2 we've added to the atmosphere, the cause of all the climate changes we'll see in our lifetimes, that happened after the schoolhouse was built. But in the context of the human experience in North America, 120 years ago is basically yesterday. Let's consider this past in human terms. 
A generation is the average time it takes for a person to be born, grow up, and have children. For convenience, let's say it's 25 years. So more than 500 generations ago, 13,000 years in the past, the distant ancestors of today's Chumash people were already living along the central coast using boats to visit the islands off Santa Barbara. As the last glaciation ended about 11,000 years ago, sea levels slowly, slowly rose 200 feet along the coast. Through generation after generation of stewardship, these were the people who created the coastal landscape, incrementally modifying ecospheres. Then, about 20 generations ago, 1492, Columbus began the Spanish conquest of the Caribbean. 19 generations ago, 1521, Cortez and his indigenous Tlaxcala allies took control of the Mexica Empire, better known as the Aztecs, setting the stage for a global Spanish empire. Ten generations ago, 1772, Mission San Luis Obispo, where Spanish officials held local Chumash people in bondage and forced them to work under the guise of Christianizing them. Seven generations ago, 1848, the United States claims California as a part of the settlement in the Mexican-American War, and two years later, 1850, California becomes a state. Then, only five generations ago, 1901, a small community south of San Luis Obispo constructs a one-room schoolhouse. In those 15 generations from 1492 to 1901, when that schoolhouse was built, empire builders radically transformed the world, politically and economically, but also environmentally. In Afro-Eurasia before 1492, there were no potatoes, there was no corn, no tomatoes, no peanuts, no chocolate, no chili peppers. Those were all indigenous inventions. In this hemisphere, there was no smallpox or measles. There was also no wheat, no horses, no cows, sheep, or pigs to change the landscape as they forage for food. Colonization of this hemisphere remade environments around the world. Then, industrialization knitted the planet together in the form of manufactured products. In 1899, the paint on a popular bicycle made in Ohio combined oil from a tree in northern Vietnam with a type of asphalt mined in Utah. Its rubber tires were made from the sap of a tree native to the Amazon basin of South America. And from there, from that industrialization, the changes only accelerated. Present day, only five generations since that one-room schoolhouse opened, we have measurably altered the planet's atmosphere. We have raised its temperature, changed the acidity of the oceans. Now, with that historical context, let's go back to my conversation with Zeke. How old do you think you'll be as you start seeing some of the stuff that you imagine happening? Aged 21. 12 years from now? Yes, because I heard that, you know, I mean, in 12 years, it's not like we're all going to die. The Earth is going to melt. But in 12 years, it could be too late to reverse the effects of climate change. And when it gets too late, I think that's where we'll start seeing the effects. The news Zeke heard was based on the projections from the 2018 IPCC report. 
Many activists and scientists continue to note that if we want to hold global warming close to plus 1.5 degrees Celsius, we need to transform our energy systems quickly and reduce global emissions by between 40 to 60 percent by 2030. All of the effects scientists project begin with greenhouse gas emissions. Is this something you feel worried about or how do you feel about it? More intensely worried, frightened. Is it that it's frightening because it's unknown, or are you imagining particular things happening? I'm imagining it getting either really, really hot or really, really cold with a lot of natural disasters. That's what Zeke imagined, but he wasn't certain. What kinds of natural disasters will we be experiencing more of due to climate change, or will we be experiencing more natural disasters at all. I think having more specific information about climate change projections makes the future less frightening. It also reminds you that we can choose to act in different ways, both individually and as a society, and that those choices have different consequences. I'll be talking in this episode about projections for climate change along the central coast, and this means changes to temperature and precipitation plus sea level rise. These direct climate change impacts, then, are expected to lead to other environmental effects. Zeke said he was afraid of huge temperature fluctuations, so let's start with temperature. Just like in every other place, there are a range of possibilities for temperature changes here, depending upon how much we reduce emissions. In a good scenario, average temperatures in the region are projected to increase by almost 4 degrees Fahrenheit by 2050, and then by 5 degrees by 2100. But if we continue what we're doing right now, the projection is an increase of 5 degrees by 2050 and 7 to 8 degrees by 2100. That won't be the same across the region. Inland areas like San Benito will see greater increases than on the coast. But as I've said in other episodes, average annual temperature doesn't really tell you a whole lot about the weather you'll experience day to day. A more helpful way to think about this might be in terms of how many more hot days scientists are projecting each year. Of course, what counts as hot is different from place to place. So let's take two examples specifically from the Central Coast. Between 1961 and 1990, Santa Cruz had an average of just about four days each year when the temperature went over 90 degrees. Some years more, some less, but over that 30-year period, it averaged out to four per year. It was about the same for San Luis Obispo. In a good future scenario, by 2100, Santa Cruz is projected to have an average of 11 days each year when the thermometer climbs over 90 and San Luis Obispo an average of 26 days. So that's just about an extra three weeks of hot summer weather for Zeke's town. But in a worse future scenario, one where we stick with our current behavior, Santa Cruz is projected to see an average of 20 days over 90 each year, and San Luis Obispo, 50 days over 90 degrees. And Zeke is likely to see these temperature changes during his lifetime. Now, if you live in another part of California with hotter weather, you might be thinking those temperature increases on the central coast don't really sound that bad. After all, in Bakersfield, temperatures went over 100 on 67 different days during 2021, so what's a few weeks over 90? 
The issue for both our bodies and our communities is increasing variability and the pace of change. Within limits, our bodies can acclimate to hotter weather over a period of several weeks, but we do not do well with sudden spikes in temperature. People in the mild central coast region are projected to experience less intense average temperature increases than people living farther inland, but they're physically vulnerable to those smaller increases specifically because of the traditional mild climate they live in. Their public buildings and homes are also less likely to have air conditioning. So adaptation to climate change in this region would need to include things like cooling centers and rules to protect agricultural workers. In spite of his fears about climate change, Zeke spent a lot of time imagining possible solutions to these global temperature increases. I was wondering, what if there was a pocket where you could zoom the spacecraft above that hole in the ozone and dump a filling down on it? I see your point, or your idea. You're trying to figure out ways of fixing the atmosphere. Yes, I'm trying to figure out ways of fixing the atmosphere, and I've heard that scientists are going to release a chemical that has been shown to improve effects like this into the atmosphere using uh, basically giant balloons. I have to say here that the hole in the ozone layer is not causing global warming. I heard this from a lot of my interviewees. Zeke is right that our atmosphere needs fixing, but the issue causing global warming is too much CO2 and other greenhouse gases. And then the second part he mentioned with the balloons, that is a real thing. It's part of a group of climate fixes known as geoengineering or climate intervention. These strategies are all still in the experimental phase, and they fall into two basic categories. The first is the development of technologies that pull carbon out of the air and then store it somewhere. So a tree is a natural version of this. It pulls carbon out of the air and then uses sunlight and water to turn it into wood, leaves, and fruit. The second category is technologies that put things into the atmosphere to reflect some of the sun's light and buy us time for an energy transition. There is a lot of controversy about these ideas, especially the idea of blocking some of the sun's light. Supporters say these large-scale climate interventions have to be part of a solution in order to stave off climate crisis. People who object point out that these actions don't solve the underlying cause of climate change, which is our ever-increasing emission of greenhouse gases. Plus, there are risks. Research from volcanic eruptions suggests that blocking some of the sun's light to lower temperatures may also reduce crop yields, causing food shortages in poorer communities around the world. And personally, I find it hard to see that as a solution. Zeke definitely understood that greenhouse gas emissions are causing the projected temperature increases, and he had an emissions-related question for government officials and climate scientists. What are you thinking about, well, reducing the intake of beef of the people of the world? The vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions, about 70%, come from our use of fossil fuels for energy, transportation, and manufacturing. But meat is also a pretty big issue, environmentally speaking. I talked about this with Nancy Freitas, my collaborator on this podcast. Nancy is a graduate student studying climate science at UC Berkeley. 
She listened to my interviews with young people, and then we discussed them. I brought my perspective from teaching history and social studies, and she brought a scientist's view and answered questions that came up. If you want to learn more about Nancy and her work, you should listen to the first episode, What is Climate Change? And before you hear this, I should mention, I do eat meat, but Nancy does not. I also actually really related with Zeke's desire to talk about eating meat because when I was nine and 10 years old, I switched to being a vegetarian as well. And that kind of kicked off my thinking about environmentalism and climate change in a lot of ways. It developed into a more in-depth knowledge about climate change. Food can be a source of conflict in households, as you may know from your own experiences, but it's also an arena where even young children can sometimes exercise power. Even when children can't dictate what they eat, they still might be able to talk about their preferences. My whole family ate meat pretty consistently when I was growing up, and I decided to become a vegetarian around the same age that Zeke did. And after that point, the cooking in our house started changing because my parents were cooking meals that had to have that had to not include meat. And so as a family, over the next decade or so, our family consumption of meat dropped considerably. You know, not all the time, but I think that those changes that children um, can initiate in their own lives can actually have broader impacts. Agriculture includes things like wheat, almonds, and spinach for human consumption, along with grain for livestock to eat, for example, and also crops to produce biofuels. Plus, chickens to eat and chickens to lay eggs, cows for milk and for beef. It includes farmed fish and shrimp. Taken together, agriculture uses a huge portion of all the land on Earth, which makes sense because there are a lot of us and we all have to eat. But some kinds of agriculture emit a lot more greenhouse gas than others. Globally, all agriculture for food accounts for 26% of our greenhouse gas emissions. Meat and dairy production, all our animal-based agriculture, is responsible for 14%. That's more than half of all agricultural emissions. Planet-wide, that means it's about the same as transportation. Now, I'm going to tell you four facts. And your job, as you listen, is to try to figure out how all these things can be true at the same time. Here we go. Fact number one. The U.S. is the single largest beef producer in the world. We produce 20% of global supply. Fact number two. The average person in the U.S. eats almost 275 pounds of meat each year. In fact, per capita, we eat the most meat of any country on Earth. Fact number three. For comparison, the average person in India eats about 8.5 pounds of meat each year. And fact number four. Here in the U.S., meat and dairy only contribute about 4% of our total emissions. And remember, globally, the meat and dairy emissions account for 14%. So that's a much lower share of our emissions in the U.S. than for the world as a whole. So the question is, how can we produce and eat so much meat, yet come in under the global average for meat-related emissions as a share of our total emissions? It's not that our meat-related emissions are low. They're not. It's that we in the U.S. consume so much electricity, we drive and fly so much, we manufacture so much, that our agriculture emissions are comparatively small as a percentage of the total. I can be a vegetarian and make very clear choices about 
my consumption of meat. But the second I take a plane flight from here to Europe or from here to the East Coast and back a few times, I have knocked out the reductions in my carbon footprint that I attained through vegetarianism in one or two flights on a plane. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be a vegetarian and you shouldn't fly, but I'm saying that like these are conscious choices that we have to continue making that compound on one another or that have the potential to reduce the effects of the other. Zeke wanted to know what government officials and climate scientists are doing to reduce beef consumption. One place this is happening is school lunches. Some districts have already changed menus to trade out meat-based meals for vegetable-based alternatives. And the California legislature is also considering a law, AB 558, which would give schools additional funding if they offer meals with plant-based options. That's reducing the demand for meat and also slowly changing food cultures in this generation. And if you're interested in reducing emissions in your community, you might start by looking at energy use and food for your school district. That's the large-scale demand side. On the supply side, the state has been supporting agricultural research to find ways of reducing the greenhouse gases, like methane, that come from growing cattle. In this arena, scientists are investigating better ways of dealing with cow manure, different kinds of feed, and more, all with the aim of reducing emissions per cow. And finally, there is an individual component to this issue. Just like finding a substitute for plastic in your life or decreasing the miles you drive, shifting to a low-meat or a no-meat diet can be a way of experimenting with more sustainable cultures for the future. To borrow a phrase from historian Robin Kelly and an idea from Black liberation movements, maybe changing your own life this way is a type of freedom dreaming. It's a way of actively envisioning a just future, creating the world you want to live in, rather than just reacting to changes. All of what you've heard so far about emissions has to do with rising global temperatures. Next up, sea level rise and precipitation. I want to introduce you to two brothers. So my name is Domingo Martinez. My name is Frank Martinez. I am 17 years old. I'm 16 years old. And I live in Watsonville, California. Watsonville was built on the ancestral lands of the Mutsun-speaking people, today represented by the Amamutsun Tribal Band. It's an agricultural area right next to Monterey Bay. We grow strawberries, raspberries, and apples are our big known fruit that we grow because Martin Nellie's was based out of Watsonville. Also cauliflower, broccoli, and artichokes. European settlers brought all those crops to California. This is an example of a landscape that has been radically altered over the past 10 generations, first by the Spanish Empire, then by Mexico, then the United States. Our current climate shift is the fastest and most recent change, but not the first one. Domingo described the mild coastal climate here. The weather is always going to be nice. Even when it rains, it's, it's not like super heavy rain. The plants and everything's nice. It's The air is fresh. It's not super humid. Domingo described himself as an athlete and someone who's active in his community. If there's a protest or, or different events, I'll probably, I'll probably be there. I asked Domingo's brother, Frank, how he thought climate change would affect the world during his lifetime. I know that a lot of species will most likely be gone because of Oh, uh, what's, what is going on? 
That's a pretty grim assessment, but Frank was actually fairly optimistic that different kinds of conservation organizations might succeed at saving some species. Do you imagine it affecting human beings in addition to animals, or do you primarily think about changes for animals? Um, I think it will affect humans because if people want to eat, say, like fish, for example, a lot of the fish might not be there. Climate change isn't something that causes Frank a lot of anxiety day to day. I think it's something I know about, but don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it because, I don't know, I guess like a lot of my friends don't really think much about climate change either. Domingo expressed more concern about climate change. And if you listened to the Taking Action episode, you heard him talking about attending a climate protest at his school. There's things I worry about, like we're, we're on like the edge of California and we live right next to the water. So like if that water rises, like the whole the whole part of uh, Santa Cruz and uh, Watsumu would all be uh, completely covered in water. So that, that, that's what I'm kind of concerned about. So here's the question. Does Domingo need to worry about sea level rise inundating Watsonville? It depends on how well towns around the Monterey Bay prepare for sea level rise. Watsonville sits at an elevation of only 32 feet above the current sea level. The town itself has shopping areas and a lot of residential neighborhoods. To the west of that, farms extend all the way to the coast. People living there may refer to the farms as part of Watsonville, but they're legally on unincorporated county land. There are waterways nearby, a series of wetlands and the Pajaro River run through the farmland and along the edges of the denser settled areas. The city of Santa Cruz, which is also on Monterey Bay, released a climate adaptation plan in 2018, and in it, they anticipated about 14 to 17 inches of sea level rise by 2060, and then 28 to 40 inches by 2100. That's a lot less than 32 feet, but when combined with a major weather event, that sea level rise matters. I looked at the Our Coast, Our Future website to see how different amounts of sea level rise will affect Watsonville when combined with big storms. With 17 inches of sea level rise, which is the 2060 projection, Low-lying, unincorporated areas from the coast almost to the western edge of Watsonville would be flooded by the storm surge. Most of this is farmland running along the wetlands and the Pajaro River. At 40 inches of sea level rise, the 2100 projection, even more farmland would be flooded. And if the West Antarctic ice sheet is lost, sea level could rise 10 feet, 120 inches, by 2100. That scenario is less likely, according to current projections, but if it did happen, then flooding would finally extend into Watsonville itself. I'm differentiating between the land inside and outside the city limits because it's going to matter as people in the Watsonville area have discussions about adapting to sea level rise. People in and out of the city limits will have different concerns, they'll have access to different funding, and different sets of decision makers will be leading the process. The city council in Watsonville itself, but the county board of supervisors for their neighbors on farms only a couple of miles away. 
The effects of sea level rise are complex and unique in each town along the coast. In some places, dense residential neighborhoods and storm drain systems are endangered. In other places, like the Monterey Bay area, sea level rise may drown coastal marshes, affecting all the species of plants and animals that rely on them. Five power plants near Santa Barbara and the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant near Zeke's home are endangered by sea level rise. Just south of Watsonville, the sea already regularly floods the railroad tracks, a problem that is only going to get worse. When Nancy and I discussed this part of the state climate change assessment, she talked about the time frames we use to think about sea level rise. There was a section in there talking about sea level rise and how one of the game plans of the city and the county was to raise roads and raise rail lines near the coast and to potentially armor beaches. And, you know, this was one of many approaches that were being looked at. Others were talking about making more natural coastlines um, to, to buffer against storms and sea level rise. Some of them were talking about moving some of that large-scale infrastructure that's close to the coast inland, relocating it so that it's not at direct threat to sea level rise. But, but there's often still this focus on, oh, we can just raise the roads and we can just raise the rail lines. We're going to pour a huge amount of money into that up front right now. Those are things that we can do to mitigate the immediate impacts of climate change. And some of that is absolutely necessary. But I think it's really important to talk about longer term views. Sea level is not going to stop rising at 2100. That's you know, that's that's an artificial marker that we have in our human brains. As long as we continue pouring greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and the longer it takes for us to shut that down, the longer we will continue seeing sea levels rise. And so the actions that we're planning to take need to be long-term actions that are more flexible, that are not, you know, old-scale, hard, gray infrastructure that is still located close to the coast. We just decide to raise the roads. We need to make our infrastructure more dynamic and able to move with changing climate conditions because we also don't know that these specific climate conditions are going to happen under the time frame that we think they are. The 2021 IPCC report summarized projections for sea level rise in the year 2300, about 11 generations from now. The likely range is a rise of 6 to 22 feet, depending on our actions. If we continue to emit greenhouse gases at our current rates, scientists say they can't rule out an increase of 49 feet. People in cities along the central coast are debating all the options Nancy mentioned and more. We can't stop the sea from rising, but communities do get to decide what they want to safeguard and which kinds of changes they find most acceptable along the coast. And they have to think about it in both the short and the long term. If you want to learn more and find out how you can participate in this kind of local decision-making, check out the second government episode. While Domingo was concerned about inundation from sea level rise, he had already experienced another type of flooding in Watsonville from the Pajaro River. A few years back, we had um, super uh, uh, rain. We had rain like for like two weeks straight. So it overfilled like the river and like started flooding. So we had to like put sandbags in our driveway, 
so the water wouldn't get into our homes. The Santa Cruz Mountains can get up to 70 inches of rain in a normal year, and scientists project that average rainfall in the Central Coast region will actually increase 10 to 20 percent over the coming decades. But, as in other parts of the state, they also project greater variability. In other words, we'll have some years with lots of storms like the one Domingo described, or even bigger ones. According to the 2019 IPCC special report, El Nino and La Nina events may become twice as common. But they also project more drought years in between the wet years. Communities need better flood management infrastructure to handle wet years, and infrastructure improvements can be very costly. For example, a new project on the levee that protects Watsonville from the Pajaro River is going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars. The dry years also pose problems. Underground aquifers are the main source of fresh water for many cities and much of the agriculture in the Central Coast. Just like in the Central Valley, pollutants from fertilizers filter down into the aquifers, contaminating people's drinking water. During drought periods, water levels in those aquifers drop quickly because farms and cities pump so much water. And then, during the wet years, they recover much more slowly. That's similar to the Central Valley. But because of the coastal location, aquifers along the Central Coast have another problem. When too much water is pumped out of an aquifer, salt water from the ocean begins to filter into it, eventually making the water in the aquifer unusable for both farming and drinking. This seawater intrusion, as it's called, has been happening in the Pajaro River Valley since the 1940s because farms in the region have been using more groundwater than filters back into the aquifers. Sea level rise makes the problem even worse. The Pajaro Valley Water Management Agency has tried to address the issue by offering farmers recycled water in place of groundwater. Also, engineers have been experimenting with solutions elsewhere in the state. For example, the West Basin Water District in L.A. County protected an aquifer by injecting fresh water into it close to the coast. Raising the fresh water level that way prevented salt water from filtering into it. People around the world are going to experience the effects of climate change at different rates. Frontline communities are the ones who are expected to experience the first and worst effects of this change. They are particularly vulnerable to the effects of major weather events because they're already often living with the effects of systemic problems like poverty and racism. In the context of Watsonville, this includes the people living and working in that flood-prone coastal strip along the Pajaro River. I think we most often think and talk about climate change in terms of whole communities and big disruptive events like floods and fires. But one of the young people I interviewed from this region reminded me about the personal changes we're going to experience over the next few decades. His home is about 20 miles from Watsonville, also along the Monterey Bay. My first name is Vince. I'm 16 and I'm from Santa Cruz, California. Some of the main like hobbies that are shared in my friend group are like surfing and fishing and just kind of just ocean related stuff, honestly. To the point where my girlfriend and her friends referred to our friend group as the Ocean Boys. When we spoke, Vince lived a five-minute walk from the beach. Beaches are kind of just like the public spaces here. They're like the parks, they're the whatever, where people have like birthdays. Everything kind of happens at the beach. It's just where everyone hangs out. It just kind of fills a role as like 
a public space for everyone. And I go there to go fish, hang out with my friends. I used to do junior guards, which is, it's a, it's like a camp where you get trained by lifeguards to do like swimming and exercise on the beach. Are you paying attention to reports about changes in fisheries? And like, do you notice stuff yourself when you're fishing? Do you think about the like availability of different species of fish? Of course. I, I always love to catch and release and I just, sustainability for fish is one of the most important things for me. Like I don't support any sort of fisheries that are unsustainable. I don't keep anything that's in a population decline. I don't, I notice like some fishing practices here are just unsustainable and other ones are, and it's just, you can, you can notice cause like when the fishing is on a decline for certain parts, for certain types of fishing, it's been remaining the same for other parts of fishing. You can tell which ones are sustainable, which ones aren't. And you got to see, you can see which stuff needs to change and which stuff doesn't. You mean like which kinds of practices need to change? Yeah. Like some commercial fisheries like are sustainable, but other ones are not like fish that are fish that are slower growing or have been like suffering from like habitat loss historically are just like, or fish that are just like way way less abundant than they were historically, you can tell. In Vince's life, the coastline is a public space for socializing, it's a place for recreation, and also the site of his job. We sell fish that like gets caught by commercial fishermen. We offload ships and like clean and bag fish, and we also do fish delivery. If you listened to the first episode of this podcast, you heard Nancy talking about some of the ways climate change is affecting our oceans. Another IPCC report came out since we recorded that episode, and the information is kind of staggering. Up to now, the ocean has absorbed more than 90% of the excess heat produced by greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It has absorbed about 30% of the CO2 we've released since 1980. And because of that, we're seeing significant changes in the ocean itself. Higher levels of ocean acidification. Lower amounts of oxygen in the waters closest to the surface. Changing currents, including currents along the coast of California that help moderate our weather. And increasingly frequent marine heat waves, which are like heat waves on land, but instead of unusually hot air, they involve unusually warm water. Many marine species are changing the ranges where they live, moving north or south toward the poles. Many are in decline. Scientists project a decrease of between 6 and 15 percent of all ocean animals by 2100, and a decrease of 20 to 24 percent in fish catch by the end of the century. Do you interact closely enough with the fishermen to hear them when they're concerned about the economic impacts of the fisheries not being healthy? Um, yeah, they'll, yeah, they'll cl- come in, sometimes they'll complain and say the fishing was terrible, or it's like, it's not, they'll make an old guy that'll come in and say like, oh, it's nothing like it used to be when I was a boy or whatever. Domingo described flooding in his community as a result of an intense storm, which climate scientists say we will see more of in the future. Vince remembered something similar. Lots of low-lying areas get flooded, even areas that are higher up. Any area that has no drainage will get flooded. Like, I remember my elementary school got completely flooded. It's in a, a paved area, but the playground's a few feet down, and it's like filled with wood chips. But that area would get flooded, and it would just turn into a big like wood chip swamp. The immediate experience of these storms is about what you'd expect. Lots of wind, high waves crashing onto the beach, trees being blown over, rivers rising, damage to people's homes. 
at my old house, the um, the roof was kind of old, and the, it would just blow all the shingles off the roof, and then the roof started leaking. It can take years to make repairs after a storm like this. And they also change beaches. Sometimes it'll wash out all the sand, and there'll, there'll just be rocks left for months or years. Other times it'll make a sandbar. And the, sand, the sand's constantly moving around, so sometimes a place will be a beach for a few years, but then it'll get all washed out and be rocky for another few years. After storms, it also there's lots of runoff and stuff will float on the river, and there'll be like driftwood and just debris all over the beaches. When I read the projections from the state climate change assessment, I think about the ways that Vince's life, if he's still living in that area, might be affected 25 or 50 years from now. Sea level rise is projected to push saltwater up into rivers, which will affect the life cycles of fish like salmon and steelhead trout. Two-thirds of the beaches in the region may be lost. Other beaches will become steeper or less sandy. In some places, waves and storm runoff will combine to cause coastal cliffs to collapse. In 2017, this happened south of Monterey, when a coastal landslide buried a stretch of that famous car commercial highway under 65 feet of dirt and debris. There are other ways the landscape may change as well. In most places, when we think about sources of water for plants, we picture rain or snow. But along the coast, there is another source of water, which is fog. Fog provides as much as 30% of the water in coastal ecosystems. The Salinas Valley and Monterey area, for example, have fog about 15 hours each day during the summer. That fog cover keeps temperatures low, it protects fish and rivers, and it reduces the need for groundwater at farms in the region. It's hard to imagine the place without it. For people that don't know, all the Santa Cruz mountains are filled with like redwood forests, like the whole city of Santa Cruz surrounded by redwood forest and that's they rely like their main source of water is fog so that would be probably be very bad for them if with the decrease of fog the state climate change assessment had a whole section on the importance of fog but the authors wrote this the future of fog is uncertain because system feedbacks and their response to climate change are not well characterized i asked nancy about this What does it mean when the state assessment, for example, says, like, we don't know yet, we're still looking into this, or like, they don't know what the effect of of climate change is going to be on fog? So what I hear as a scientist, um, and what I read as a scientist when I see that, is maybe one of two things. One, either there hasn't been enough research in the specific area that can or has been rolled into models in a way for the models to be able to project those changes out a certain number of years. So maybe, I I don't know if this is correct, but what it could look like with regard to fog is there haven't been enough on-the-ground studies of fog and how fog is or has been changing historically in order for us to roll that into a model in a competent and comprehensive way. I think it's easy to forget that all these projections I've been using for this podcast are the result of thousands of scientific studies going back decades now. When I say scientists are projecting a particular change, I'm using a single sentence to summarize the results of many studies representing thousands of hours of work by researchers. But the work is still ongoing, meaning some questions don't yet have answers. The other thing is that the changes that climate change will bring increased heat, more variable precipitation, are things that we haven't necessarily seen in 
the immediate history of our climate record, which means that we don't necessarily have a proxy for what they might look like in the future. Like we don't know if increased heat plus more variable precipitation plus changing circulation patterns will cause El Nino events to be longer, to be more intense, to be more frequent, because maybe all of those intersecting effects haven't happened at the same time um, and what we've observed in the past. And so our understanding of what's happening is developing as those effects are happening on the ground level. Earlier, I talked about the speed of the change we're currently experiencing. It's rapid even by comparison to the period of change over the generations since the Mission San Luis Obispo was founded in 1772. This type of change represents a challenge for human societies as we try to adapt our ways of life to new environment. But it also presents challenges to researchers who are trying to understand our climate as new circumstances emerge. Throughout this episode, you've been hearing about the complex ways that temperature increases, precipitation, and sea level rise are intersecting to change life in the Central Coast region. We'll end with one final example, and it's one that you've heard about in every region of the state. Here's Domingo again, and then Vince. I was doing cross-country at school, and uh, we had to wear masks uh, when we were running because the smoke uh, was so bad in our area. And then they had to postpone our Central Coast championships. And then they had to change it from all the way from, I think, Daly City all the way to Salinas because the smoke was so bad. I don't know if it was the east side of the Santa Cruz Mountains, but a big section of the Santa Cruz Mountains caught fire. And you could see it from my house. I mean, you could see it from the ocean, basically. You could see it. You could see it at night. It was like super bright and there's lots of smoke and the whole town was just... It was kind of all smoked out. Did that affect your school as well? Yeah. We, ha- we couldn't play sports or anything because of the smoke. They didn't want everyone going outside, breathing all the smoke in. Fires are harmful to human health, even at a distance. And fire is likely to continue to be an issue in this part of the state, just like in the rest of California. But when we look at how fire intersects with temperature, precipitation, and that mountainous coastal landscape in this region, the picture gets more complicated. A possible cycle might go like this. First, a series of hot drought years, including a year with a huge wildfire. Then, an exceptionally wet winter with an intense storm that drops several inches of water over a handful of days. The heavy rains falling on steep burned-over hillsides lead to a debris flow, or a mudslide in everyday terms. And then that debris flow crushes houses, destroys river habitat, pours into drinking water facilities or maybe into a reservoir. Each individual ingredient, temperature, fire, precipitation, affects the environment. But layered on top of each other, they just can feel overwhelming. It's no wonder we don't really want to talk about it. Usually in the context of like jokes, people will be like, like blame climate change for it being too hot or like, say like it'll be like an extra rainy or extra like crazy month or something. The weather will be off and they'll blame climate change for that whatever. But aside from that, we don't really have like deep conversations about like, I just don't think people like to confront like just stuff like that head on. They just, whatever, they rather, it makes it easier to accept when you're not like, you're just like joking about it instead of actually trying to deal with it. At the beginning of this episode, you heard Zeke ask if he'll be facing a lot of natural disasters in his future. 
I think what's safe to say is that those of us living during these four generations of the 21st century will experience some intense weather events, along with a set of complex environmental changes. The faster we achieve carbon neutrality, the more we can reduce the intensity and frequency of those effects. But will those weather events and environmental changes be disasters? That's a government question more than a science question. In the best case scenario, in the worst case scenario, in every scenario in between, our world is going to be utterly transformed over the next three generations between now and 2100. Maybe, as Zeke said, today's young people will one day look back on the past, our present, with nostalgia, as the time before the bad stuff happened. But keep in mind, it's also possible that you'll look back on these years, when you're older, as the moment when the good stuff began. We humans have both the capacity and the imagination to change our world in either direction. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about climate change in the Central Coast region, check out the Future Imperfect resources at calglobaled.org. You'll find links about each of the topics mentioned in this episode. Next up, I'll be talking about my own neighborhood, the San Francisco Bay Area. Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton. Future Imperfect is a production of the California Global Education Project, without whose generous support this would not have been possible.